Father, uh, we are just fortunate to be here this morning as a church family. And also, God, we understand that uh, you're the only God that there is. You're our creator. And uh, you rescued us by sending your son to give his life for us. And the day will come when we will be in your presence because of your love for us and what your son has done for us. And so with that, God, this morning, we ask that you will open our hearts and our minds up to your word and let us be uh, people that can obey what you've asked us to do. Lord, even when sometimes it's hard teaching for us. So uh, hear our prayers and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Danny. I've been studying the Word of God for a long time. I have been teaching and preaching the Word of God for a long time. In the midst of all of that, I have come to the conclusion that there are portions of Scripture that we would just as soon cut out. We'd like to take a pair of scissors to it and just cut it out and throw it away. And when we can't do that, there's passages that we freely, willingly ignore and others that we skip over like a rock across water. It happens. That is the truth. And there are passages of Scripture that as soon as we hear them, our mind just shuts down or we start framing up an argument against that passage very quickly. This morning, I'm going to share one of those with you. And I'm asking you, just as Deanie did as we were praying, you keep an open mind as we get into this. Don't go the normal, natural, given way of shutting down. Don't start framing up an argument. You stay with me through this. We're in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 13. Listen to what the now-aged apostle has to say. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We're going to stop there. We'll come back to verse 18, but we're going to stop there for just a bit. See what I mean by a passage of scripture that just seems difficult? It's one of those that we would just like to skip right over and not spend any time with. We don't want to listen to it. We don't want to pay attention to it. And we certainly don't want to do what it says because that may push us into places that we don't want to go. So we would just as soon ignore it. When we come across passages like that, we try to minimize them as quickly as we can. And and there's different ways that people do that. In this particular case, one of the ways that folks like to minimize what Peter was teaching is simply to say, well, that was an easy thing for him to write, but he has no idea, had no idea when he wrote this, how bad things might get for Christians. He has no idea how oppressive the government could be against people of faith. He doesn't know and did not know then what it was going to be like today and even in the future. Well, I might offer to you that Peter was writing those words during a time that we can't even begin to fathom. We can't even begin to imagine. He knows what he was writing about. 
But still, in our efforts to try to minimize the teaching so that we don't have to pay attention to it, we don't have to internalize it or do what it says, we'll try to say, he really doesn't know what it's like for us. That was just a cultural thing then that was a lot easier to live by than it is today. Oh, that's a mistake. Don't make that mistake. And in order to keep you from making that mistake, let me encourage you to just imagine for a moment or two with me that we have the chance to have a conversation with Peter himself about what it was like when he wrote these words. So we're talking with Peter, and we say, Peter, you can write about submitting to authorities, but do you really know anything about it? There's our first question to him. And Peter in our conversation would say, yes, I do. I know quite a bit about this because you see, I lived during the days of the first five emperors of Rome. And Peter might look at us and say, do you know who the first five emperors of Rome were? And we might say, I, I heard a long time ago, I know that I've heard the names, but I don't remember them specifically and, and really what they're famous for. So no, I, I don't know much about that. He says, well, okay, here's the first five emperors. Remember, each one of them came into power by military might. There was Caesar Augustus. And right after Caesar Augustus, there was Caesar Tiberius. And right after Tiberius, there was Caligula. And right after Caligula, there was Claudius. And the fifth one was Nero. A lot of people know more about Nero than they do the other four. Do you know anything about the other four, Peter would say to us? And, and we might, in a moment of honesty, say, really, I don't. He said to you, or would say to us, do you even know what the Bible has to say about them and how they come into play in the, the Gospels? And we might say, well... No, I don't. He said, what about the rest of the New Testament? You know anything about that? Well, no, no, we really don't. And he says, well, before you believe that I don't know what I'm talking about, let me walk you through those five. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the one that was in power when Jesus was born. It was by his edict that Joseph made his way to Bethlehem for the census. You know why Joseph had to go to Bethlehem? It's twofold. One had to do with taxes. But really, Augustus, remember, he got into the position he was in by military power. One of the real reasons that he called for the census was to count the fighting men. He wanted to know how many there were if he had to go to war. And the emperors liked going to war. So he was going to count the fighting men, find out how many were at his disposal. It was really because of Augustus calling the census that the prophecy was fulfilled that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So he had a major role in making sure that all the things that God had said would happen did. But then there's Tiberius. You know anything about Tiberius? Tiberius was in power when John the Baptist started to preach. Tiberius was in power during the adolescence of Jesus and the adult ministry of Jesus. Follow this, Tiberius is the one that appointed Pilate as the governor over all of Israel, all of, over all of the Hebrew people. If Tiberius had not been in power, Pilate would not have been in power, and Pilate is the one who sentenced Jesus to die. Tiberius had a major role in the New Testament. He was not necessarily a great person, but he was better than Pilate. Peter might even go on to tell us that there's a legend, just a legend. 
History doesn't back it up. It's just a legend that says Tiberius had to actually summon Pilate to come to Rome because he had heard so often that Pilate was a brutal, vicious, violent man executing people at the drop of a hat. So he was going to make Pilate stand before him and face the accusations. But Pilate, on his way to Rome, the legend says he died before he ever got there. Then there's Caligula. You've probably heard the name, but do you really know who Caligula was, Peter would say to us? Are you aware of him? That dude was as crazy as an outhouse mouse. That's what Peter would say in the original language. He was nuts, believed himself to be a god. That's who Caligula was. He thought he was, was all that plus more. And this is how we know he was so crazy. We don't just need Peter to tell us this. Roman history tells us that Caligula thought so much of himself that he had statues of himself made and then he placed them in all of the temples of the false gods in the city of Rome so that when people would go in there to worship, they would, by association, be worshiping him, not their gods. Because Caligula had no use for religion of any kind. So Caligula said, I'm going to actually set my sights on making sure that everybody worships me. And he really had no use for Judaism. So he had a statue of himself made that he was going to place in the temple of the Most High God in Jerusalem. Before that could happen, he was assassinated. He was assassinated before that could happen. But he was crazy. A lot of people believed that he was the abomination of desolation that Jesus would talk about in Matthew chapter 24. Before they were even familiar with the term Antichrist, they believed that Caligula was the Antichrist because he brought so much persecution against any person of faith. That was Caligula. Right after Caligula, there was Claudius. We'll come back to Claudius. And after Claudius, Nero. Nero was at the beginning, seemingly a friend of Christians and a friend of religions. Peter would sit with us and say he was actually kind of unwinding some problems that the emperors before him had placed on people of faith and those that were believers. But by the end of his life, Nero was anything but a friend of Christians. He would set fire to the city of Rome and he would blame Christianity for it. It was under Nero's rule and awfully close to it when Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter that he had determined that all Christians were bad and they were causing such an uprising that he had to do something to get rid of them. Thus, the fire. But even when the fire didn't work and he wasn't able to silence the voice of Christianity, Nero decided that he would eliminate the loudest voices. So the Apostle Paul became enemy of the state number one. There was a price put on his head and they hunted him down. Peter was enemy of the state number two and a man named Aquila was enemy of the state number three. And just months before Nero died, he would execute all three of them. Peter died at the hands of Nero. Remember, he's the one who said, submit to those in authority, whether it be the emperor or whoever it is. He died at the hands of Nero. His only request after Nero had said that Peter was to be crucified was that he be crucified upside down because Peter said, I am not worthy to die in the manner in which my Lord died. So please, if you're going to crucify me, at least do it upside down. So they crucified him upside down. 
Oh, Peter knew what he was writing about. When Peter wrote about submitting to authorities, he knew. Don't dismiss it like he didn't. He knew. First five emperors of Rome. He lived during all five of them. They measured his life. Tiberius on. Really, he was a teenager on from Tiberius's reign to Nero's reign and the end of it. He knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. He lived it. So when Peter writes words like this, it is incumbent upon us to pay attention, to listen to what he has to say. But let's go back to Claudius, because Claudius was really the emperor during the early days of Peter's ministry and on into the later days before Nero would take over. Claudius was this unique, unique ruler. He was sickly. He was known to be unassuming and unappealing. He was frail. He was this type of person that no one was drawn to, yet history would tell us, history would tell us, that Claudius was a good leader. People followed him. Even the military followed him. Maybe that's because his father was a powerful Roman general. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because his uncle was Tiberius, so people just listened to what he had to say. That might be the reason that people followed him. Peter would tell us, you know, Claudius was just kind of an enigma that didn't make sense. But under his leadership, the Roman Empire grew significantly in land. It was Claudius who reworked a lot of the legal system of the Roman Empire. And under his leadership, a number of building projects just took off. But it was under Claudius's reign that two other very significant things happened the dispersion of God's people. The first one out of Jerusalem, Claudius was in power. We've talked about that. It's called the diaspora. The Christians that had become a, a part of the early church, the first church, came under persecution at the hands of the apostle Paul under Claudius's reign. They dispersed out of Jerusalem and they went into all the distant lands Peter would tell us about that. He'd say they went to the small towns and they went some to the large towns. They went all over the place, but they carried the gospel with them. They carried the gospel and the church became something because of that dispersion. And Peter would tell us that some of those people that left Jerusalem went to the city of Rome and they took the gospel there and that's how the church got there. That's how people started to become Christians. And they brought something to the city of Rome that Claudius didn't know what to do with. He wasn't sure. Extra-biblical writers, historians, Greek historians would tell us that at the later part of his life, he would require another dispersion. The Bible would tell us about it too. You see, Claudius is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, both in the book of Acts. The first one has to do with a famine. This is found in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's this great famine across the land during Claudius's reign. The Bible just lays that out very pointedly, very purposefully. 
Now, history would tell us that Claudius figured out a way to deal with the famine. He figured out a way to handle it for most of the land, while the church was figuring out how to handle it on their own. Pretty cool the way the two went hand in hand. The government and the church were meeting the needs of people. But the second time Claudius is mentioned is in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There's the second dispersion. Claudius said, all of the Jews, and by association, all of the Christians, have to get out of the city of Rome because they had brought such dissension to the city that he couldn't bring peace. So Claudius said, the only way that we can manage this is to get these people out of here. One Greek historian said that the reason that he kicked them out of Rome was because of a man named Crestus. Now here's the cool thing. Crestus is a reference to Jesus Christ. Let that soak in. So unbeknownst to Emperor Claudius, if we were talking with Peter and Peter's had a good wind so far, and now if he's getting ready to land his plane, he would say, Claudius, Claudius did some things that he never imagined. Under Claudius's reign, we find historical proof of the person of Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. Outside of the Bible, we find historical proof because of what Claudius did. How cool is that? Peter would go on to tell us that under Claudius' reign, prophecy was fulfilled. He brought about some things that had to happen, but really the best part was the spread of the gospel going different places. And under Claudius' reign, we found the opportunity yet again to understand a teaching of an Old Testament prophet that is so good. That prophet's name is Isaiah. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's what Claudius helped us understand. And then Peter will be done. Peter would say that Claudius helped us understand the macro level at which God works. I'm not sure he would use the word macro, but he does in my imagination. The macro level. God's doing things that are beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God is doing things that are much larger than us as individuals. But he cares about us at the micro level. And so that's why it is necessary for us to say, even when it doesn't make sense with people in positions of authority, that we will submit to them because of what God is doing. His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so sometimes, oftentimes, it is necessary, all times, unless it is contradictory to the Word of God, and we'll get to that, we are to submit to those in positions of authority, even when we don't agree, even when it makes us uncomfortable. At the macro level, God is doing something bigger than us. So at the micro level, we have to find our place in it, Peter says. And then Peter would wrap it up by saying, don't tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. First five emperors of Rome, and I died at the hand of Nero. Don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, Peter would say. I do, I do. 
And there's a purpose at work here. Because God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Peter would say. So we have to pay attention to this. Even when we don't agree, even when it pushes us, we have to pay attention to this teaching. We have to. We can't just dismiss it because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we have to pay attention. So let's do that. Let's just jump into it. I want to show you what the Bible says about submitting to authorities. You may be completely shocked to find out that Scripture speaks a great deal about this, both Old Testament and New. Let me show you a couple of passages where we see it laid out. We'll start in the Old Testament. This book of Proverbs, Solomon says this. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. That's Solomon, wisest man to ever live. But take a look at the New Testament. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Hard teaching, difficult teaching. But as we study it, we may very well find this reality to just pop off the pages of Scripture. There were times, there were times when people pushed back against the authorities. So if this is the teaching of the Bible, and there are times when people push back against the authorities, what do we do with that? Here's a couple of examples, again, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're pretty cool guys, when they had an edict passed on them by Pharaoh that they had to follow the dietary laws of the Egyptians, they said, no, we're not going to do it. But they did it in such a way that they found favor with those in positions of authority, and as a result of that, they found favor with God. So they didn't have to, they pushed back. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, Peter and all the other apostles would push back against the authorities when they told them that they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus. At the moment they said, you have to stop saying what you're saying, you can't preach in the name of Jesus, Peter and the other apostles said, whoa, you've gone too far. We will preach in the name of Jesus and we will not stop. And they didn't. And they didn't. So they pushed back. And then Peter is the guy who writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So how do we reconcile all of that? Well, we do it by looking at the whole of the Word of God and remembering that it is the institution in the office that we submit to, not the individual laws. Catch that? It is the institution in the office that we are called to submit to, not the individual laws. Here's a way of thinking about it. Christians are to obey all laws and respect all authority unless God or unless called upon to do something God forbids or not do something he commands. So there is a line within this teaching that we have to become very comfortable with and very familiar with because sometimes we do push back. Sometimes we are to push back. When there is a law or an authority that tells us to do something that is contrary to the word of God or the will of God, we are not to follow that. We have to push back. But a lot of the other laws that just make us uncomfortable and that we don't personally like, we still have to follow. We still have to pay attention to them. 
And Peter actually told us why. If you want to reconcile this whole issue, you can do it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in order to do that, I want to encourage you to, to apply something that I refer to as three-dimensional Bible study. Now, let me say this. When it comes to passages that we want to cut out, the ones that we want to throw away or skip over, more often than not, that is the time for us to apply, to apply three-dimensional Bible study, which means bringing things out of it in such a way that we can get into it. We have to make it three-dimensional. As long as we leave it one-dimensional, we can just move right past it. But you make it three-dimensional and you will find yourself in it. So we're going to make this passage three-dimensional. I'll show you how. It's going to be up on the screen. Now, those bold letters, that's supposed to reflect 3D. Follow our technology. Here we go. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. There are three passages or three sentences and thoughts within this passage that allow us to make it three-dimensional. I'm guessing you can see those three thoughts. Encourage you to highlight them in your Bible or underline them in your Bible because they give great meaning to what Peter is teaching. The first one, very simply, for the Lord's sake. You do this for the Lord's sake. It's not for you. It's for the Lord's sake, because remember, he's doing things at the macro level that we do not understand. As we walk through those first five emperors, you saw how that worked. Augustus needed to be in the position he was in to call for the census. Tiberius needed to be in the position that he was in so that Pilate would be appointed as governor. And on and on and on and on it goes. Because God's operating at the macro level, not the micro level, the macro level. Isaiah 55, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. He's operating at the macro level. So you submit to the authorities for the Lord's sake because you don't know what God's doing. You don't have that ability and that privilege. So what you have is the command that keeps you doing what you're supposed to do for the Lord's sake. Even when it makes you uncomfortable, even when you don't like it, you do that for the Lord's sake. But sometimes you have to push back and, and you have to figure out when that is. Well, Peter actually calls that out for us as well. Here's the last two statements. For the will of God living as servants of God. It is the will of God that helps us determine what we're supposed to do. And the way you know the will of God is by knowing the word of God. So you get into the Word of God that you might know the will of God so that you can live as servants of God for the Lord's sake. It's this all-encompassing thing. And when it becomes three-dimensional, we can say, I want to live as a servant of God in such a way that I am following the will of God in the Word of God so that for the Lord's sake, I can be a part of His macro plan, whatever that is. But at the micro level... I have to live in a way that is good and holy and pleasing to him. And Peter would say, oftentimes that means in submission to people in positions of authority, even when you don't want to. So unless 
unless the law or the command or the rule goes against the will of God and the Word of God, you have to live as servants of God for the Lord's sake, submitting to those in positions of authority. And that can be tough. That can be tough. But a lot of us could say, okay, this is a government thing, and I'm not sure that I'm ever going to be called upon to do what Paul did or what Peter did, and, and I don't ever see it getting so bad that, that those are things that I'm going to have to face personally on the micro level. Well, first, let me say that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more real those things will become. And in the years that I have been on this earth, I have seen challenges of Christianity grow and grow and grow exponentially. And I have seen the tides turn against people of faith in ways that when I was a kid, I never thought possible, but today I see it. So don't, don't just believe that you'll never see that at that macro level. But if you do, then understand that Peter makes this a micro issue as well. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, Peter goes from this macro idea of submitting to the government, he boils it right down, he just boils it right down, to slaves and masters. And we could easily say, well, that doesn't apply to us because we're not slaves and we don't have masters. Well, in today's application of it, it deals with employers and employees. People that are in positions of authority over us. Employers and employees in our Western culture, that's how we would apply that. And here's this idea of submission. And in a, the workplace, sometimes we want to throw our arms up and, as Deanie would say, we want to shout, hey, no fair, when we get overlooked for a promotion or a raise or somebody else is promoted faster than us or they're given greater honor than we are. Hey, no fair, this isn't right. Any application you want to place in there, you can place it. Whatever you are enslaved to and have a person in position of authority over you, it works. Hey, no fair. Well, in God's economy, it doesn't really have a place. Because for the Lord's sake, we want to do what we are supposed to do according to the will of God and the word of God so that we can live as servants of God. So we have to figure that out. John MacArthur has a pretty direct way of saying it. Take a look. It is more important to God that those who are citizens of heaven display a faithful testimony marked by spiritual integrity than that they strive to attain all their perceived rights in this world. It is more important to God for believers to uphold the credibility of gospel power than to obtain a raise or promotion in their vocation. It is ultimately far more important to God that believers demonstrate their submission to His sovereignty in every area of life than that they protest against problems at their workplace. 
for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, and the testimony that the servants of the Lord have. So we live by the will of God and the word of God, for the Lord's sake. Thankfully, Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 to give us a, a really good example. He says, you know, if you're struggling with this, pay attention to Jesus. Because he, he was without sin. He was falsely accused. And then submitting to the rulers and the authorities, he willingly gave his life. And folks, listen to this. Listen to this. If you hear nothing else, listen to this. Dial in right now. If you have checked out on me, come back. Listen to this. If Jesus hadn't done that, we would not know salvation. We would not know salvation. And all of those things that had to happen in order to get him to the cross required extreme submission because we're talking about the creator of the universe at any given time. He could have said enough is enough. And he didn't. And he didn't. And we know salvation and we know relationship with God because of it. So Peter says, if you're struggling with this, follow the example of Jesus. It'll help. Follow the example of Jesus. And remember, he knows what you're talking about. You don't even have to worry about Peter. Jesus knows what you're dealing with. But if you need a little more help, follow Peter. Remembering that it is by Jesus' wounds that we are healed. Peter becomes a great example of that. Because you see, this wasn't something that he just figured out early on. Peter writes this letter close to the end of his life, very close to the end of his life. Early on, while Jesus was still alive, early in Peter's ministry, this happened. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now there's Peter struggling just like us. This is wrong. You're not going to take him. He draws his sword and whacks off the ear of Malchus. You want to know a cool little biblical detail? <laughs> Here you go. This is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention it just like John does. Cool thing is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke never say which disciple it was. They just say one of the disciples. But John, and I want you to remember, John is the brother of James, and together they are known as the sons of thunder the sons of thunder, John's the one who rats him out. <laughs> and you can imagine Peter going, John, I was getting by. Why did you do that? Why did you have to give them my name? Why did you have to tell them them? And John's going, yeah, Peter, you did it. And I put your name in there. Today, we'd be saying that John broke all HEPA laws by putting his name in there. And that just was wrong. 
Peter had to grow into what he wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 2. It didn't come easy. It wasn't natural. He had to grow into it as he grew up in Christ. And he wrote all of that just shortly before he would die, just a couple years. And then he would submit. And he lost his life. Oh, Peter knew what he was writing about. So you follow Jesus' lead, and if you need to, you pay close attention to Peter's. Because the guy who wrote those words grew up in his faith to a place where he could. And he believed them, and he lived them, and it became his testimony. Let it be yours too. It's hard. It's hard. And you might say, and it's a, a fair question, it's a very fair question, how then do we know when to push back? How do we know when it isn't the will of God and if we can't find it in the Word of God, how do we make the decision when to push back? My answer to that, simple. Slowly and deliberately. That's how you make that decision. Slowly and deliberately. I'll leave you with this. Max Lucado wrote a book that is really nothing more than questions that people sent to him and his biblical answers for those questions. One of the questions closely mirrors this discussion that we're having right now. So let me just share it with you. person writes, Things are getting really dicey at work. With all the layoffs, my colleagues are redefining integrity. Some are claiming sales they did not make. Others are padding their expense accounts. I empathize with their actions. In fact, I'm tempted to hedge my bets myself. This is Max's response. Be careful. Don't make a decision in a storm that you wouldn't make in calm weather. I have a friend who recently learned to fly. His teacher wanted to train him to trust the instrument panel because storms and fog can distort the perspective of the pilot. He may think he's flying safely when actually he's descending toward the earth. To prove his point, the teacher took my friend up and blocked his view so he had to rely on the panel. The teacher then rocked and rolled the plane so much that the student was dizzy and his equilibrium was off. The teacher then turned over the controls to his pupil. My friend was convinced he had leveled out the plane. His instinct, his impression was that the flight was flat. The instrument panel told another story. According to the controls, he was descending toward the earth. Now, what should he trust? The same happens to us. Circumstances and struggles bounce us around. Our perspective gets distorted and our equilibrium out of whack. In those hours, we have to make decisions. Do we commit adultery or remain faithful? Do we cheat or stay honest? Do we compromise or take a stand? Can we trust our instincts in the storm? The Bible says we can't. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In the rough and tumble of bad weather, we need an outside force. We need a guide that is unaffected by storms. Don't listen to your friends. Listen to your father. That's the way we figure it out. I know that some of you are faced with a lot of different issues that cause you to say, how do I know the will of God? I've been in the word of God. I can't find the answers. But I want to live as a servant of God for the Lord's sake and the testimony. So I don't know. I'm faced with big choices. If you are, I want to encourage you to go over to the prayer room as soon as the service is over. It's over here to my right, your left. Our elders will be there. Danny will be there. 
He'll make sure that you get paired up with somebody. There's other decision counselors too. They'll, they'll pray with you about those decisions. Some of you, though, today may have had your heart stirred to think about Jesus in a way that you've never thought of before because he submitted to the authorities to willingly give his life that we will know salvation and by his wounds we can be healed. And you need to make a decision for Jesus, much like you saw just a few moments ago. So why don't you go over to the prayer room and talk to somebody. People did in first service. They do every week. Go over there and talk to somebody. Make sure your needs get met. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, a difficult passage. You know that. So do we. But thanks for putting it in Scripture to stretch us, to challenge us, to make us think more about you than ourselves, but in the process to also make us think about others. Lord, there's so many layers to this passage. But I am most grateful that as we peel them back, we see you. Lord, would you let that always be the case? Let us see you. I know today there are some people that need to see you. So would you meet them where they're at and lead them through? Be that unto salvation or peace. Lead them through. In Jesus' name, amen.